It's time for the children's moment, and um, I hope we can hear each other well this time. So I wonder if you happen to know what day is tomorrow. Now, tomorrow is Monday, but do you also know another thing that is happening Monday, why Monday is kind of special? Most of us don't know, and I didn't know until about maybe 10 years ago. Today is uh, the, the prelude, the workup, the eve of St. Nicholas Day. St. Nicholas Day is tomorrow. And I sent over to you some pictures of St. Nicholas. Of course, we have no idea what he looked like because he was a bishop in Turkey in about the two or three hundreds. It's a long, long time ago. So long ago that Nicholas participated in the Nicene meeting where they came up with the Nicene Creed and developed that statement of belief for us. So the picture that you see there is kind of a cartoon picture. And Nicholas is wearing his bishop's mitre, and he has his bishop's crozier, or staff. So that's one picture. And by the way, these pictures are going to be on the table, uh, or on the stage, rather, during coffee hour. So if you come to coffee hour, you'll be able to see the pictures. So that's one kind of a cartoon drawing of St. Nicholas. Maybe we can see the next picture of St. Nicholas, because that shows him with his stole, and he's holding the word of God, because he was a defender of pure doctrine. That's one of the reasons he was at Nicaea. And he even has a halo over his head. So that's another picture of St. Nicholas. Why don't we look at our last picture of St. Nicholas? And that shows him again with a real tall mitre and his bishop's crozier. And this time he has a long white beard. So we can see how the image of St. Nicholas is kind of changing over the centuries. St. Nicholas was a very popular saint in Europe. In fact, in Germany, there are more churches named for St. Nicholas than for any other than the Blessed Virgin Mary. So when you go to Germany, you'll see lots of Nikolaikirchen, Nicholas churches, that they're named for St. Nicholas. So why do we celebrate him and why is he kind of special to us? St. Nicholas was a very, very wealthy man. He came from a family with a lot of money. And he determined that he was going to give away what he had. And so his generosity made him famous even in his own time. The interesting thing, too, about St. Nicholas is that he never wanted people to know that he was giving away all this money. And so he would do it anonymously or kind of secretly. And so there's a story that there were three little children who were going to be sold into slavery. And Nicholas heard about it and during the night came to the open window of the house and threw in money so that the children didn't have to be sold into slavery. And part of the story is that the gold money landed in shoes that were by the fireplace. And so in places in Germany and in Holland, kids will put out their shoes. And surprisingly enough, in the morning, there's a treat there's candy, there's maybe even some money. And that's where that custom came from. But the main thing about St. Nicholas is remembering that he was very, very generous. And in fact, he even had a prayer that I came across that I think is very, very good. He said, the giver of every good and perfect gift 
has called upon us to imitate God's giving by grace, through faith, and this is not of ourselves. So that sounds pretty Lutheran to me. And I think we can celebrate his day. So what day is tomorrow? St. Nicholas Day. That's right. So a blessed St. Nicholas Day for all of us. And may we follow his holy example. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for people who show us how to live, who have lived into your gospel, and who have been faithful to your purposes. Help us, too, during this time of giving, to be generous in our hearts and to follow, to imitate the one who is the giver of every perfect gift. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you kids have any questions about St. Nicholas, you be sure to ask. And if I don't know, maybe I'll even make something up. How's that? Because people have been making stuff up about St. Nicholas for about 1,500 years. So we're okay as long as we tell good stories. Blessings to you, and thanks for being here. So may grace and peace be with us all. The grace and peace to be the signs and to point the way. Today's gospel lesson begins with what one commentator called a sixfold synchronicity. And that's just a fancy way of saying that Luke is telling us six things that were happening all at the same time. This is in accordance with kind of Greek literary tradition at the time, people like Thucydides, and also it has good precedent in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, like in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes about. So Luke also synchronizes his story with the political and ecclesiastical situation that was developing at the time. Augustus Caesar had died in what we now know as AD 14 or so. So the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign would correspond to AD 28 or 29. This is the setting of our story. Caiaphas and Annas were not high priests at the same time. That could not have happened. But as a matter of fact, the office of high priest was held by members of Annas' immediate family for 50 years after he had retired. So it must have been hard for him to let go. He was still pulling the reins of power. So Luke wants to make sure that we have a context for the appearance on the scene of this remarkable remarkable person that we know as John the Baptist. In fact, the Greek scriptures, our New Testament, are not the only reference that we have about John the Baptist. The important historian Flavius Josephus, maybe many of you have heard of him, Josephus was a Pharisee and essentially went over to the Roman side and wrote a number of significant helpful histories. He also tells us about John the Baptist in his book called The Antiquities. And Josephus also tells us about the imprisonment of John the Baptist. And here's what Josephus writes. Herod became frightened that such persuasiveness with the people might lead to some uprising. For it seemed that the people might go to any length to follow his advice. So before any new incident might stem from him, John the Baptist, Herod considered it far better to seize John in advance and do away with him 
rather than wait for an upheaval and become involved in a difficult situation and regret it. That's from the historian Flavius Josephus. John must have been an extraordinarily powerful preacher for people to walk way out into the desert in order to hear him. Luke doesn't give us many details about how John was dressed or what he ate. We have to look elsewhere in other gospels for that. But Luke does indicate that the appearance of John the Baptist was a fulfillment of prophecy. You heard that when Tom read the Isaiah passage for us. We will hear more about John the Baptist through the rest of Advent. But before we turn from the messenger to the message, it is also fascinating to speculate on John's own story. In the first chapter of Luke, Luke 1, we are told of John, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he publicly appeared to Israel. What does that mean? What's Luke talking about? Many of us speculate, me included, that John was perhaps part of the Essene movement, that group of people that separated themselves from the mainstream of Judaism. They lived along the shores of the Dead Sea and devoted much of their thought and writing to the upcoming battle that they saw coming between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. They retained that Judaic emphasis on purification and, as archaeology shows us, carved into the stone where the Essene settlements were. Carved into the stone was a mikvah, a ritual bath, as a means of ritual purification. Steps lead down into the mikvah, and then the person proceeds through the water up over their heads and then up another set of stairs out after the purifying waters have done their work. And of course, this group of Essenes is also thought to be largely responsible for what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes were a group of celibate men, and so their community was enlarged by taking in orphan boys. Well, given the advanced age of John's parents that we hear so much about in the first chapter of Luke, Elizabeth and Zechariah were both past the age of having children. Given their advanced age, could it be that John was in fact taken in and schooled in that Essene community with all of its concerns for purity and the end times? Of course, we will never know with any certainty. But we do know, after setting the timeline so thoroughly with us, with that sixfold synchronicity, Luke goes on to say, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John's message was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is challenging for us who are so thoroughly acquainted with baptism in the Trinitarian way to realize that John's baptism wasn't like that. It was a ritual purification, and it was a baptism of repentance. Luke doesn't actually say all that much about John baptizing. Next week in Luke's Gospel, as we might expect from Luke, John the Baptist will call out for justice just as much as he is calling out today for repentance. Advent is, in fact, a season of repentance. We have considered before how Advent was, in fact, traditionally a time of sober reflection and fasting not unlike the season of Lent. 
I can remember when the Advent colors were violet or purple and the pastor's stole as well as the chancel were all in the same colors that were used during Lent. So the Advent season is, in fact, should be, hopefully is for us, a time of contemplation and repentance. At Bible study this week, we had quite an extensive discussion of what repentance really means. Many of us still carry around a picture of stereotype in our mind of, let's say, a man on the street carrying a sign that says, repent, and on the other side it says something like, prepare to meet your doom, or some other equally kind of daunting statement. And that's our picture of someone who's talking about repentance. It's not such a reassuring message. Or we think about penance. Or we think about remorse the sackcloth and ashes that we hear about with some frequency in the Hebrew Bible. And there's, of course, nothing wrong with remorse if we don't get stuck in it or if it motivates us to make amends. But the dark side can also work to make sure we are stuck in remorse so that we never get to repentance, which essentially means to turn around, to turn around. Perhaps this is what the prophet Joel meant when he wrote, rend your hearts and not your garments. Or as they say on the Weather Channel, turn around, don't drown. Turn around from that which makes for death to that which makes for life. Turn around from that which shatters relationships to that which nurtures relationships. Turn around, do different. I remember my work with children who were, for better or for worse, put in special classes because of their behavioral issues. And often when a youngster had a recurring episode of some troublesome behavior, we would be visiting with them and perhaps saying something like, you know, Bob, this happened just a couple days ago. And so often Bob would respond with, well, I said I was sorry. So remorse was there, but not too much. And there was no Repentance, there was no turning around. The difference between remorse and repentance, saying you're sorry and turning around and doing differently. So let's think of what we might repent of during this Advent season, among many things that could be on our list. Could we, during this season of Advent, repent of our perfectionism? Can we minimize the voice of that harsh inner critic that always tells us that wasn't good enough. And further, you're not good enough. Who do you think you are? Some of us have that harsh inner critic. Can we turn around from the attitude that says, if it's not perfect, it's drack? Can we gently let go of such a significant burden which functions mostly to enlarge our own misery as we strive after the perfection that almost always will elude us. I recall talking about this with other groups on more than one occasion, and the response from the listeners was sometimes something like, well, does that mean there are no standards at all? And of course, I like to say that's an example of what, in Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step groups, they call stinking thinking, or with a bit more elegance, perhaps, we could call it dichotomous reasoning, bifurcation. If it's not perfect, then it must be direct. I would submit for all of us and for our note of grace to ourselves that between perfection and direct, there is an enormous continuum 
And in that continuum, there is, in fact, space for that which is very, very good, and in fact, space for what is utterly sufficient. Sufficient. It is enough. Stop beating up on yourself. We can still uphold the truth and beauty in all its forms while forgiving us, forgiving ourselves when we fall short. I had a dear friend who was something of a perfectionist, and she knew it, and she acknowledged it. And she would always say, a perfectionist is someone who takes great pains and gives same. Can we turn around from that unnecessary and gratuitous pain, which we might inflict on ourselves and on others from trying to be perfect? which leads to another thing from which we might repent during Advent, which is judgmentalism. Among other things, this means so often when we're judgmental that we are relentless in our search for someone to blame. Father Richard Rohr, my favorite living Franciscan, says of blame, this formless guilt must go somewhere. We used to accuse ourselves mercilessly, and now we do the same to our parents to institutions, or even to history itself. There must be a victim and a victimizer, Father Rohr says. But why? What does it help? Maybe that is why Jesus became the cosmic victim and refused to condemn the victimizer. They know not what they do. When I'm talking and thinking about judgmentalism, I always think of a story about St. Anthony of the Desert. St. Anthony was one of the very earliest Christian monks who went out into the Egyptian wilderness to be by himself and to cultivate a closer relationship to God. As he did so, of course, he became famous and he would have people come to him. And so he would have to move further out into the wilderness to be by himself with God and so on and so on. In any case, on one occasion, a young monk came to him for advice. This young man had become a monk rather recently and was, of course, celibate. So you can imagine what was going through his mind at times. The young monk looked around at the behavior of others who had not chosen his celibate way of life, and the young monk was full of righteous indignation. Have you noticed our indignation is almost always righteous? In any case, this young man came to St. Anthony and in great self-righteousness essentially asked St. Anthony, So, what do you think of all these, these sinners? And St. Anthony was reported to have said, after a suitable period of silence, Well, the same God that told us don't sin also told us don't judge. I can imagine that young monk felt quite deflated. Don't judge. Jesus tells us clearly it's not in our job description. And yet there seems to be some kind of knee-jerk gratification, some sense of superiority, some sense of false power that we gain from judging others. But it's a short-term gain with a long-term pain. I have said this to more clients in my office than I can count. If you want to make yourself truly miserable and utterly cranky, set yourself up as a judge and evaluator of other people's behaviors. 
So does that mean there are no standards? Of course not. We all know that there are ways that make for life and ways that make for death. But there's no reason to make for a second death by choosing to focus our attention on the misdeeds of others and thereby being ourselves filled with condemnation. In fact, I would suggest that you uphold your highest standards and I will attempt to uphold my highest standards. And just think about it, people, there will be full employment everywhere. It's job creation. There will be little time for evaluating the behaviors of others. Besides which we know, there can't always be a degree of certainty as to whether a particular set of actions or circumstances is good or bad to begin with. In fact, years may go by, don't they, in some circumstances before we know whether those circumstances were good or bad or both at the same time. One of my favorite quotes from Kierkegaard, you'll probably hear it from me again, is, life must be lived forward but understood backward. Oh yeah, isn't that the truth? And as we've heard before, disappointments can, in fact, eventually turn out to be a gateway to a more expanded way of living and a new, more life-giving form of relating. During this Advent fast, can we turn around from perfectionism? Can we turn around from judgmentalism? And actually, they may be two sides of the same coin when you think about it. During this Advent fast, can we also turn around from abject materialism, from our love affair with money, which almost all of us have, and our love affair with stuff? Can we instead, following the example of St. Nicholas, continue to learn the supreme art of being grateful and generous and content with what we have when it is enough? And so often, for so many of us, more than enough way more than enough. Dan Siegel, who's a wonderful psychiatrist and philosopher working here in California, talked of this as a sort of surface certainty. Are you certain you have enough? You hear that even on advertisements for long-term care insurance and all kinds of things. Are you sure you have enough to get you through your retirement or are you gonna run out of money? So as Dr. Siegel puts it, if I think I have to have 100 units to be happy, and I get 100 units, and I'm not happy, then I must need 200 units. And on and on and on it goes. This is called the hedonic treadmill, as in hedonism. And once you get on, it's mighty hard to get off. What's it going to take to make us happy? Our culture says, just a little bit more just a little bit more. Can we turn around from grasping and holding to approaching life with an open hand and an open heart? After providing for our own needs, and yes, even some of our wants, can we move beyond that narrow focus to realize our interconnection with everyone around us, with everyone on the planet, and in fact, can we recognize our connection with everything, everything? 
can we turn around from perfectionism, from judgmentalism, and from obsessive materialism? Can we turn around from those things that are distractive and destructive to the abundant life that Jesus said he came to bring us? John came bearing witness so that all flesh could see the salvation of God. All flesh. Remember Luke's emphasis on the universality of the gospel? It was a message for everyone. John was called out of the wilderness to point the way to Jesus. In so many paintings, and I have two examples of that also for, uh, for us at Coffee Hour on the stage, in so many paintings from the very earliest that we have until more contemporary paintings, John the Baptist is shown pointing towards Jesus with his index finger. Sometimes even as the two infants are sitting on the laps of their mother, the aged Elizabeth and the Blessed Virgin Mary, You've probably seen pictures of paintings like that. John the Baptist was called to prepare the way, to be a sign, and to point to Jesus. Martin Luther wrote concerning John the Baptist. Luther said, therefore, I think so highly of his ministry, and I give thanks to God, our beloved Father, that the Father has given to us so faithful a witness, so blessed a mouth and finger, to testify before us to the same light and to lead us to that light, that through that self-same light, we may become enlightened and that it may shine radiantly in our hearts for everyone. Behold the man who points with his finger to the Lord, the Lamb of God. He is a witness to the light and he helps us through his ministry to become children of light. Therefore, he shines like a radiant and lovely light. And that's high praise coming from someone like Martin Luther. Jeremy Troxler, who teaches at Duke Divinity School, we heard from him last week, had this observation. Dr. Troxler wrote, the theologian Karl Barth, who was one of the premier Protestant theologians of the 20th century, the theologian Karl Barth had a painting of the crucifixion on the wall of his study. In the painting, there is an image of John the Baptist, his extra long index finger raised, directing and pointing the observer to the cross of Jesus in the center of the painting. It is said that when Barth would talk with the visitor about his work as a theologian, Barth would direct them to the picture of John the Baptist in the painting, and he would say, I want to be that finger. I want to be the sign pointing to the victory of Christ. As we move toward the celebration of Christ's coming, God with us, we, we are to be signs of his advent. Our lives are to be a proclamation of how God so loved the world. We are to be that index finger of John the Baptist now pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world so that all flesh might see the salvation of our God. So, may grace and peace be with you all, the grace and peace to be the signs and point the way. Amen.